0: PART ONE OF CHAPTER Six: LEMBARENI. OF TRAVELS IN WEST AFRICA. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. TRAVELS IN WEST AFRICA. BY MARY H. KINGSLEY. Part One of Chapter Six, Lembarene. In which is given some account of the episode of the hippopotame, and of the voyager's attempts at controlling an Ogowe canoe, and also of the Igalwa tribe. I say good-bye to Talaguga with much regret, and go on board the Clouaire when she returns from Injole with all my bottles and belongings. On board I find no other passenger. The captain's English has widened out considerably, and he is as pleasant, cheery, and spoiling for a fight as ever. But he has a preoccupied manner, and a most peculiar set of new habits, which I find are shared by the engineer. Both of them make rapid dashes to the rail And nervously scan the river for a minute, and then return to some occupation, only to dash from it to the rail again. During breakfast, their conduct is nerve-shaking. Hastily taking a few mouthfuls, the captain drops his knife and fork, and simply hurls his seaman-like form through the nearest door out onto the deck. IN ANOTHER MINUTE HE IS BACK AGAIN, AND WITH JUST A SHAKE OF HIS HEAD TO THE ENGINEER, CONTINUES HIS MEAL. THE ENGINEER SHORTLY AFTERWARDS FLIES FROM HIS SEAT, AND BEING FAR THINNER THAN THE CAPTAIN, HE GOES THROUGH HIS NEAREST DOOR WITH EVEN GREATER RAPIDITY, RETURNS AND SHAKES HIS HEAD AT THE CAPTAIN, AND CONTINUES HIS MEAL. EXCITEMENT OF THIS KIND IS INFECTIOUS. And I also wonder whether I ought not to show a sympathetic friendliness by flying from my seat and hurling myself onto the deck through my nearest door, too. But although there are plenty of doors as four enter the saloon from the deck, I do not see my way to doing this performance aimlessly, and what in this world they are both after, I cannot think. So I confine myself to woman's true sphere and assist in a humble way by catching the wine and vicky-water bottles, glasses and plates of food, which at every performance are jeopardized by the members of the nobler sex starting off with a considerable quantity of the ample tablecloth wrapped round their legs. At last I can stand it no longer, so ask the captain point-blank what is the matter.' "'Nothing,' says he bounding out of his chair and flying out of his doorway but on his return he tells me he has got a bet on of two bottles of champagne with warman's agent for Ingioli, as to who shall reach lembarene first and the german agent has started off some time before they were in his little steam launch during the afternoon we run smoothly along the free pulsations of the engines, telling what a very different thing coming down the Ogowe is to going up against its terrific current. Every now and again we stop to pick up cargo, or discharge over cargo, and the captain's mind becomes lulled by getting no news of the warman's launch having passed down. He communicates this to the engineer. It is impossible she could have passed the Claire since they started— "'therefore she must be somewhere behind it at a saub factory.' "'Ne sais pas? Oui, oui, certainement,' says the engineer. "'The engineer is by these considerations also lulled, "'and feels he may do something else but scan the river à la Sister Anne. "'What that something is puzzles me. "'It evidently requires secrecy, and he shrinks from detection.' First he looks down one side of the deck. No one there. Then he looks down the other. No one there. Good so far. I then see he has put his head through one of the saloon portholes. No one there. He hesitates a few seconds until I begin to wonder whether his head will suddenly appear through my port, but he regards this— as an unnecessary precaution and i hear him enter his cabin which abuts on mine and there is silence for some minutes writing home to his mother think i as i go on putting a new braid round the bottom of a worn skirt almost immediately after follows the sound of a little click from the next cabin and then apparently one of the denizens of the infernal regions has got its tail smashed in a door and the heavy hot afternoon air is reft by an inchoate howl of agony. I drop my needlework and take to the deck, but it is after all only that shy retiring young man practising secretly on his clarionet. The captain is drowsily looking down the river. But repose is not long allowed to that active spirit. He sees something in the water. What?' hippopotame he ejaculates now both he and the engineer frequently do this thing and then fly off to their guns bang bang finish but this time he does not dash for his gun nor does the engineer who flies out of his cabin at the sound of the war shout hippopotame in vain i look across the broad river with its stretches of yellow sand-banks where the hippopotame should be "'but I can't see nothing but four black stumps sticking up in the water away to the right. "'Meanwhile the captain and the engineer are flying about getting off a crew of blacks "'into the canoe we are towing alongside. "'This being done, the captain explains to me that on the voyage up the engineer had fired at "'and hit a hippopotamus, and without doubt this was its body floating.' "'We are now close enough for me to recognize the four stumps as the deceased legs, and soon the canoe is alongside them and makes fast to one, and then starts to paddle back, hippo and all, to the cladware. But no such thing. Let them paddle and shout as hard as they like. The hippo's weight simply anchors them. The cladware by now has dropped down the river past them and has to sweep round and run back.' recognizing promptly what the trouble is the energetic captain grabs up a broom ties a light cord belonging to the lead-line to it and holding the broom by the end of its handle swings it round his head and hurls it at the canoe the arm of a merciful providence being interposed the broom tomahawk does not hit the canoe wherein if it had it must infallibly have killed some one but falls short and goes tearing off with the current well out of reach of the canoe. The captain, seeing this gross dereliction of duty by a charge broom, hauls it in hand over hand and talks to it. Then he ties the other end of its line to the mooring rope, and by a better aimed shot sends the broom into the water about ten yards above the canoe and it drifts towards it breathless excitement surely they will get it now alas no just when it is within reach of the canoe a fearful shudder runs through the broom it throws up its head and sinks beneath the tide a sensation of stun comes over all of us the crew of the canoe ready and eager to grasp the approaching aid gaze blankly at the circling ripples round where it sank In a second the captain knows what has happened—the heavy hawser, which has been paid out after it has dragged it down. So he hauls it on board again. The clarewer goes now close enough to the hippo-anchored canoe for a rope to be flung to the man in her bows. He catches it and freezes on gallantly. Saved? No! Oh, horror! the lower deck hums with fear that after all it will not taste the toothsome hippo chop for the man who has caught the rope is as nearly as possible jerked flying out of the canoe when the strain of the eclair contending with the hippo's inertia flies along it but his companion behind him grips him by the legs and is in his turn grabbed and the crew holding on to each other with their hands and to their craft with their feet save the man holding on to the rope and the whole situation and slowly bobbing towards us comes the hippopotamus who is shortly hauled on board by the winners in triumph my esteemed friends the captain and the engineer who of course have been below during this hauling now rush on to the upper deck each coatless and carrying an enormous butcher's knife they dash into the saloon where a terrific sharpening of these instruments takes place on the steel belonging to the saloon carving knife and downstairs again by looking down the ladder i can see the pink pig-like hippo whose colour has been soaked out by the water lying on the lower deck and the captain and engineer slitting down the skin intent on growlitching operations providentially my prophetic soul induces me to leave the top of the ladder and go forward run to winard as captain murray would say for within two minutes the captain and engineer are up the ladder as if they had been blown up by the boilers bursting and go as one man for the brandy bottle and they wanted it if ever man did for remember that hippo had been dead and in the warm river water, for more than a week. The captain had had enough of it, he said, but the engineer stuck to the job with a courage I profoundly admire, and he saw it through and then retired to his cabin, sand and canvassed himself first, and then soaked and saturated himself in Florida water. The flesh gladdened the hearts of the crew and lower-deck passengers, and also of the inhabitants of lembarene who got dashes of it on our arrival there hippo flesh is not to be despised by black men or white i have enjoyed it far more than the stringy beef or vapid goat's flesh one gets down here i stayed on board the eclairuer all night for it was dark when we reached lembarene too dark to go round to Cangue, and next morning after taking a farewell of her i hope not a final one for she is a most luxurious little vessel for the coast and the feeding on board is excellent and the society varied and charming i went round to kangwe i remained some time in the Limbarene district and saw and learnt many things i owe most of what i learnt to m and m m M. e who knew a great deal about both the natives and the district and i owe much of what i saw to having acquired the art of managing by myself a native canoe this recklessness of mine i am sure did not merit the severe criticism it has been subjected to for my performances gave immense amusement to others i can hear lembarena's shrieks of laughter now and to myself they gave great pleasure My first attempt was made at Talaguga one very hot afternoon. M. and M. M. E. Forget were, I thought, safe having their siestas. Orani was with M. M. E. Gacon. I knew where M. M. E. Gacon was for certain. She was with M. Gacon, and I knew he was up in the sawmill shed, out of sight of the river, because of the soft thump, thump, thump of the big water-wheel. There was, therefore, no one to keep me out of mischief, and I was too frightened to go into the forest that afternoon, because, on the previous afternoon, I had been stalked as a wild beast by a cannibal savage, and I am nervous. Besides, and above all, it is quite impossible to see other people, even if they are only black, naked savages, gliding about in canoes without wishing to go and glide about yourself so i went down to where the canoes were tied by their noses to the steep bank and finding a paddle a broken one i unloosed the smallest canoe unfortunately this was fifteen feet or so long but i did not know the disadvantage of having as it were a long-tailed canoe then i did shortly afterwards the promontories running out into the river on each side of the mission beach gave a little stretch of slack water between the bank and the mill-race like current of the ogowe and i wisely decided to keep in the slack water until i had found out how to steer most important thing steering i got into the bow of the canoe and shoved off from the bank all right then i knelt down learned how to paddle standing up by and by good so far I rapidly learned how to steer from the bow, but I could not get up any pace. Intent on acquiring pace, I got to the edge of the slack water, and then displaying more wisdom, I turned round to avoid it, proud as a peacock, you understand, at having found out how to turn round. At this moment the current of the greatest equatorial river in the world grabbed my canoe by its tail. We spun round and round for a few seconds like a teetotum, I steering the whole time for all I was worth, and then the current dragged the canoe ignominiously downriver, tail foremost. Fortunately, a big tree was at that time temporarily hanging against the rock in the river, just below the sawmill beach into that tree the canoe shot with a crash and i hung on and slipping my paddle pulled the canoe into the slack water again by the aid of the branches of the tree which i was in mortal terror would come off the rock and insist on accompanying me and the canoe via kama country to the atlantic ocean but it held and when i had got safe against the side of the pinnacle rock I wiped a perspiring brow and searched in my mind for a piece of information regarding navigation that would be applicable to the management of long-tailed aduma canoes. I could not think of one for some minutes. Captain Murray has imparted to me at one time and another an enormous mass of hints as to the management of vessels, but those vessels were all presupposed to have steam power— but he, having been the first man to take an ocean-going steamer up to Matadi on the Congo, through the terrific currents that whirl and fly in hell's cauldron, knew about currents, and I remembered he had said regarding taking vessels through them, Keep all the headway you can on her. Good. That hint inverted will fit the situation like a glove, and I'll keep all the tailway I can off her feeling now as safe as only a human being can feel who is backed up by a sound principle i was cautiously crawling to the tail end of the canoe intent on kneeling in it to look after it when i heard a dreadful outcry on the bank looking there i saw mme forget m m gacon m gacon and their attributive crowd of mission children all in a state of frenzy "'They said lots of things in chorus.' "'What?' said I. "'They said some more and added gesticulations. "'Seeing I was wasting their time as I could not hear, "'I drove the canoe from the rock and made my way mostly by steering to the bank close by, "'and then tying the canoe firmly up I walked over the mill-stream "'and divers other things towards my anxious friends. "'You'll be drowned,' they said. "'Gracious goodness!' said I. "'I thought that half an hour ago, but it's all right now. "'I can steer.' "'After much conversation I lulled their fears regarding me, "'and having received strict orders to keep in the stern of the canoe, "'because that is the proper place when you are managing a canoe single-handed, "'I returned to my studies. "'I had not, however, lulled my friends' interest regarding me, "'and they stayed on the bank watching.' I found, first, that my education in steering from the bow was of no avail, second, that it was all right if you reversed it. For instance, when you are in the bow and make an inward stroke with the paddle on the right-hand side, the bow goes to the right, whereas, if you make an inward stroke on the right-hand side when you are sitting in the stern, the bow then goes to the left. Understand?" Having grasped this law, I crept along up river, and, by Allah, before I had gone twenty yards, if that wretch, the current of the greatest, etc., did not grab hold of the nose of my canoe, and we teetotummed round again as merrily as ever. My audience screamed. I knew what they were saying. "'You'll be drowned! Come back! Come back!' But I heard them, and I heeded not. "'If you attend to advice in a crisis, you're lost. Besides, I couldn't come back just then. However, I got into the slack water again by some very showy high-class steering. Still, steering, fine as it is, is not all you require and hanker after. You want pace as well, and pace except when in the clutches of the current I had not so far attained.' perchance thought i the pace region in a canoe may be in its centre so i got along on my knees into the centre to experiment bitter failure the canoe took to sidling down river broadside on like mr winkle's horse shouts of laughter from the bank both bow and stern education utterly inapplicable to centre, and so, seeing I was utterly thrown away there, I crept into the bows, and in a few more minutes I steered my canoe, perfectly in among its fellows by the bank, and secured it there. M.M.E. Forget ran down to meet me and assured me she had not laughed so much since she had been in Africa, although she was frightened at the time, lest I should get capsized and drowned.' I believe it, for she is a sweet and gracious lady, and I quite see, as she demonstrated that the sight of me, teetotumming about, steering in an elaborate and showy way all the time, was irresistibly comic. And she gave a most amusing account of how, when she started looking for me to give me tea, a charming habit of hers, she could not see me in among my bottles, and so asked the little black boy where I was.' There, said he, pointing to the tree hanging against the rock out in the river, and she, seeing me hitched with a canoe against the rock, and knowing the danger and depth of the river, got alarmed. Well, when I got down to Lembarene I naturally went on with my canoeing studies in pursuit of the attainment of pace. Success crowned my efforts, and I can honestly and truly say that there are only two things I am proud of— one is that Dr. Gunther has approved of my fishes, and the other is that I can paddle an Ogoway canoe. Pace, style, steering, and all—all all same for one, as if I were an Ogowe African. A strange, incongruous pair of things, but I often wonder what are the things other people are really most proud of. It would be a quaint and repaying subject for investigation." M. M. E. Jacot gave me every help in canoeing, for she is a remarkably clear-headed woman, and recognized that, as I was always getting soaked anyhow, I ran no extra danger in getting soaked in a canoe, and then, it being the dry season, there was an immense stretch of water opposite Andande Beach, which was quite shallow. So she saw no need of my getting drowned." the sandbanks were showing their yellow heads in all directions when i came down from talaguga and just opposite adande there was sticking up out of the water a great graceful palm frond it had been stuck into the head of the pet sandbank and every day was visited by the boys and girls in canoes to see how much longer they would have to wait for the sandbank's appearance a few days after my return it showed and in two days more there it was Acres and acres of it, looking like a great golden carpet, spread on the surface of the center of the clear water, clear here, down this side of Lembarene Island, because the river runs fairly quiet and has time to deposit its mud. Dark brown, the Ogowe flies past the other side of the island, the main current being deflected that way by a bend just below the entrance of the Nguni. There was great rejoicing. Canoe-load after canoe-load of boys and girls went to the sand-bank, some doing a little fishing round its rim, others bringing the washing there, all skylarking and singing. Few prettier sights have I ever seen than those on that sand-bank, the merry-brown forms dancing or lying stretched on it, the gaudy-coloured patchwork quilts, and chins mosquito-bars that have been washed, spread out drying— looking from kangwe on the hill above like beds of bright flowers by night when it was moonlight there would be bands of dancers on it with bush-light torches gyrating intermingling and separating till you could think you were looking at a dance of stars they commenced affairs very early on that sandbank and they kept them up very late and all the time there came from it a soft murmur of laughter and song "'Ah, me! If the aim of life were happiness and pleasure, Africa should send us missionaries instead of our sending them to her. But fortunately for the work of the world, happiness is not. One thing I remember which struck me very much regarding the sandbank, and this was that M. M. E. Jacquot found such pleasure in taking her work on to the veranda, where she could see it. I knew she did not care for the songs and the dancing—' "'One day she said to me, "'It is such a relief.' "'A relief?' I said. "'Yes, you do not see that "'until it shows there is nothing but forest, "'forest, forest, and that still stretch of river. "'That bank is the only piece of clear ground "'I see in the year, "'and that only lasts a few weeks "'until the wet season comes, "'and then it goes, and there is nothing "'but forest, forest, forest for another year.' It is two years now since I came to this place. It may be, I know not how many more, before we go home again. I grieve to say, for my poor friend's sake, that her life at Kangwe was nearly at its end. Soon after my return to England I heard of the death of her husband from malignant fever. M. Jacot was a fine, powerful, energetic man in the prime of life— He was a teetotaler and a vegetarian, and although constantly travelling to and fro in his district on his evangelising work, he had no foolish recklessness in him. No one would have thought that he would have been the first to go of us who used to sit around his hospital table. His delicate wife, his two young children, or I would have seemed far more likely. His loss will be a lasting one to the people he risked his life— to what he regarded save. The natives held him in the greatest affection and respect, and his influence over them was considerable, far more profound than that of any other missionary I have ever seen. His loss is also great to those students of Africa who are working on the culture or on the languages. His knowledge of both was extensive, particularly of the little-known languages of the Ogoa district." He was, when I left, busily employed in compiling a dictionary of the fan tongue, and had many other works on language and contemplation. His work in this sphere would have had a high value, for he was a man with a university education, and well grounded in Latin and Greek, and thoroughly acquainted with both English and French literature, for although born a Frenchman, he had been brought up in America." He was also a cultivated musician, and he and M. M. Jacot in the evenings would sing old French songs, Swiss songs, English songs in their richful voices, and then if you stole softly out onto the veranda you would often find it crowded, with a silent black audience listening intently. The amount of work M. and M. M. E. Jacot used to get through was, to me, amazing, and I think that the Ogoe Protestant mission sadly short-handed, its missionaries not being content to follow the usual Protestant plan out in West Africa—namely, quietly sitting down and keeping house, with just a few native children indoors to do the housework, and close by a school and a little church where a service is held on Sundays. The representatives of the Mission Evangelique go to and fro throughout the district round each station on evangelizing work among some of the most dangerous and uncivilized tribes in Africa, frequently spending a fortnight at a time away from their homes, on the waterways of a wild and dangerous country. In addition to going themselves— They send trained natives as evangelists and Bible readers, and keep a keen eye on the trained native, which means a considerable amount of worry and strain too. The work on the stations is heavy in Ogoa districts because, when you have got a clearing made and all the buildings up, you have by no means finished with the affair, for you have to fight the Ogoa forest back, as a Dutchman fights the sea." But the main cause of work is the store which in this exhausting climate is more than enough work for one man alone payments on the ogowe are made in goods the natives do not use any coinage equivalent save in the strange case of the fans which does not touch general trade and which i will speak of later they have not even the brass bars and cheetahs that are in use in calabar or cowries, as in Lagos. In order to expedite and simplify this goods traffic, a written or printed piece of paper is employed, practically a cheque, which is called a bon, or book, and these bons are cashed, i.e. gooded, at the store. They are for three amounts, five fura, a dollar, one fura, a franc, desu, fifty centimes, half a fura the value given for these bonds is the same from government trade and mission although the mission evangelique does not trade i e buy produce and sell it at a profit its representatives have a great deal of business to attend to through the store which is practically a bank all the native evangelists black teachers bible readers and labourers on the stations are paid off in these bonds AND WHEN ANY REPRESENTATIVE OF THE MISSION IS AWAY ON A JOURNEY, FOOD BOUGHT FOR THEMSELVES AND THEIR CANOE-CREWS IS PAID FOR IN BONDS, WHICH ARE BROUGHT IN BY THE NATIVES AT THEIR CONVENIENCE, AND CHANGED FOR GOODS AT THE STORE. THEREFORE, FOR SEVERAL HOURS EVERY WEEKDAY, THE MISSIONARY HAS TO DEVOTE HIMSELF TO STORE WORK, AND STORE WORK OUT HERE IS BY NO MEANS PLAYING AT SHOP. It is very hard, tiring, exasperating work when you have to deal with it in full as a trader, when it is necessary for you to purchase produce at a price that will give you a reasonable margin of profit, over-storing, customs duties, shipping expenses, etc., etc. But it is quite enough to try the patience of any saint, when you are only keeping store to pay on bonds, a la missionary for each class of article used in trade—and there are some hundreds of them—has a definite and acknowledged value. But where the trouble comes in is that different articles have the same value. For example, six fish-hooks and one pocket-handkerchief have the same value, or you can make up that value in lucifer matches, pomatum, a mirror, a hair-comb, tobacco or scent in bottles. "'Now, if you are a trader, certain of these articles cost you more than others, although they have an identical value to the native, and so it is to your advantage to pay what we should call in Cameroons a cru, cheap copper, and you have a lot of worry to effect this. To the missionary this does not so much matter. It makes absolutely no difference to the native, mind you, so he is by no means done by the trader.' take powder for an example. There is no profit on powder for the trader in Congo-Francaise, but the native always wants it because he can get a tremendous profit on it from his black brethren in the bush. Hence it pays the trader to give him his bon, out in boma-check, etc., better than in gunpowder. This is a fruitful spring of argument and persuasion. However, whether the native is passing in a bundle of rubber— or a tooth of ivory, or merely cashing a bond for a week's bush-catering, he is, in congo Francais incapable of deciding what he will have when it comes to the point. He comes into the shop with a bond in his hand, and we will say, for example, the idea in his head that he wants fish-hooks—jupes, he calls them— but confronted with the visible temptation of pomatum he hesitates and scratches his head violently surrounding him there are ten or twenty other natives with their minds in a similar wavering state but yet anxious to be served forthwith in consequence of the stimulating scratch he remembers that one of his wives said he was to bring some lucifer matches another wanted cloth for herself and another knew of some rubber she could buy very cheap in tobacco of a fan woman who had stolen it this rubber he knows he can take to the trader's store and sell for pocket handkerchiefs of a superior pattern or gunpowder or rum which he cannot get at the mission store he finally gets something and takes it home and likely enough brings it back in a day or so somewhat damaged desirous of changing it for some other article or articles remember also that these bantu like the negroes think externally in a loud voice like mr kipling's unt he smells most awful vile and if he be a fan he accompanies his observations with violent dramatic gestures and let the customer's tribe or sex be what it may the customer is sadly sadly liable to pick up any portable object within reach under the shadow of his companion's uproar and stow it away in his armpits between his legs or if his cloth be large enough in that picture to yourself the perplexities of a christian minister engaged in such an occupation as storekeeping under these circumstances with likely enough a touch of fever on him and jiggers in his feet and when the store is closed the goods in it requiring constant vigilance to keep them free from mildew and white ants then in addition to the store-work a fruitful source of work and worry are the schools for both boys and girls It is regarded as futile to attempt to get any real hold over the children, unless they are removed from the influence of the country fashions that surround them in their village homes. Therefore the schools are boarding, hence the entire care of the children, including feeding and clothing, falls on the missionary. The instruction given in the Mission Evangelique schools does not include teaching the boys trades. The girls fare somewhat better as they get instructions in sewing and washing and ironing, but I think in this district the young ladies would be all the better for being taught cooking. It is strange that all the cooks employed by the Europeans should be men, yet all the cooking among the natives themselves is done by women, and done abominably badly in all the Bantu tribes I have ever come across— and the Bantu are in this particular, and indeed in most particulars, far inferior to the true Negro, though I must say this is not the orthodox view. The Negroes cook uniformly very well, and at moments are inspired in the direction of palm oil chop and fish cooking. Not so the Bantu, whose methods cry aloud for improvement, they having just the very easiest and laziest way possible of dealing with food— The food supply consists of plantain, yam, cocoa, sweet potatoes, maize, pumpkin, pineapple, and okres, fish both wet and smoked and flesh of many kinds, including human in certain districts, snails, snakes and crayfish, and big, maggot-like pupae of the rhinoceros beetle and the rhinoceros palmatorum, For sweetmeats the sugar-cane abounds, but it is only used chewed au naturel. For seasoning there is that bark that tastes like an onion—an onion distinctly passé, but powerful and permanent, particularly if it has been used in one of the native-made rough earthen pots. These pots have a very caveman look about them. There are unglazed, unlidded bowls. They stand the fire wonderfully well and you have got to stand as well as you can the taste of the aforesaid bark that clings to them and that of the smoke which gets into them during cooking operations over an open wood fire as well as the soot-like colour they impart to even your own white rice out of all these varied material the natives of the congo francais forests produce dirtily carelessly and wastefully a dull indigestible diet yam sweet potatoes ochres and maize are not so much cultivated or used as among the negroes and the daily food is practically plantain picked wild green and the rind pulled off and the tasteless woolly interior baked or boiled and the widely distributed manioc treated in the usual way the sweet or non poisonous manioc i have rarely seen cultivated because it gives a much smaller yield and is much longer coming to perfection. The poisonous kind is that in general use. Its great dahlia-like roots are soaked in water to remove the poisonous principle, and then dried and grated up, or more commonly, beaten up into a kind of dough in a wooden trough that looks like a model canoe, with wooden clubs which I have seen the curiosity hunter happily taking home as war-clubs to alarm his family with. The thump, thump, thump of this manioc beating is one of the most familiar sounds in a bush village. The meal, when beaten up, is used for thickening broths and rolled up into bolsters, about a foot long, and two inches in diameter, and then wrapped in plantain leaves, and tied round with tie-tie and boiled, or, more properly speaking, steamed, for a lot of the rolls are arranged in a brass skillet. A small quantity of water is poured over the rolls of plantain, a plantain leaf is tucked in over the top tightly, so as to prevent the steam from escaping, and the whole affair is poised on the three cooking stones, over a wood fire, and left there until the contents are done, or more properly speaking, until the lady in charge of it has delusions on the point, and the bottom rolls are a trifle burnt, or the whole insufficiently cooked this manioc meal is the staple food the bread equivalent all along the coast as you pass along you are perpetually meeting with a new named food fufu on the leeward kank on the windward emvada in corisco oguma in the ogowe but acquaintance with it demonstrates that it is all the same manioc it is a good food when it is properly prepared But when a village has soaked its soil-laden manioc tubers in one and the same pool of water for years, the water in that pool becomes a trifle strong, and both it and the manioc get a smell which once smelt is never to be forgotten. It is something like that resulting from bad paste with a dash of vinegar, but fit to pass all these things, and has qualities of its own that have no civilized equivalent." i believe that this way of preparing the staple article of diet is largely responsible for that dire and frequent disease him belly, and several other quaint disorders possibly even for the sleep disease the natives themselves say that a diet too exclusively maniocan produces dimness of vision ending in blindness if the food is not varied The poisonous principle cannot be anything like soaked out in the surcharged water, and the meal, when it is made up and cooked, has just the same sour, acrid taste you would expect it to have from the smell. The fish is boiled or wrapped in leaves and baked. The dried fish, very properly known as stink fish, is much preferred. This is either eaten as it is, or put into stews as seasoning, as also are the snails'. The meat is eaten either fresher, smoked, boiled, or baked. By baked I always mean just buried in the ground and a fire lighted on top, or wrapped in leaves and buried in hot embers. The smoked meat is badly prepared, just hung up in the smoke of the fires, which hardens it, blackening the outside quickly, but when the lumps are taken out of the smoke, in a short time cracks occur in them, and the interior part proceeds to go bad, and needless to say, maggoty. If it is kept in the smoke, as it often is to keep it out of the way of dogs and driver-ants, it acquires the toothsome taste and texture of a piece of old tarpaulin. End of Part 1 of Chapter 6 Lemparene. Read by Kehinde of BajaTrek.com.